You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution, is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 46, The End of Illusion. Thanks for joining me. We left off last time in the late summer of 1798. The Army of the Orient had taken Cairo, and Napoleon was busy establishing himself as the ruler of Egypt. At a glance, it looked like Bonaparte was well on his way to achieving his aims. But delve a little deeper, and it becomes immediately evident that the expedition was facing serious, potentially fatal problems. We've discussed these setbacks at length in previous episodes, the destruction of the French fleet, the looming threat of another war in Europe, an impending counterattack from the Ottomans, and the inherent challenges of governing a country that was very alien to the French. The closer you examine the state of the expedition, the bleaker it looks. However, not all was lost. Not yet. Napoleon's opponents were disorganized. The Republican army was still the best fighting force in the world arguably the strongest institution of any type, military or otherwise. And Bonaparte was still Bonaparte. The setbacks had not dampened his energy. We've seen him triumph against longer odds. We spent a lot of time last episode dwelling on the failings of the French administration in Egypt, and still managed to barely scratch the surface. This shouldn't be surprising. The French came as colonialists, and were ultimately in Egypt to serve their own interests, not the people of the country. And even if they had been a purely altruistic presence, I don't think they had the knowledge, understanding, or resources to govern well. Still, the French occupation could boast of a few real achievements, fleeting glimpses of Napoleon's higher aspirations for the expedition. They built public grain mills throughout the Nile Valley. Each mill would transform the economic lives of the nearby peasants, who previously had to pay huge fees to their lords to have their crops milled, or sell them to middlemen, who turned a quick profit at the peasants' expense. This was a simple, relatively cheap measure that improved the lives of the rural farmers, who made up the majority of the Egyptian population, and strengthened the country's economy as a whole. The Mamluks could have done it centuries ago, if they'd had the inclination. The French also introduced new crops and agricultural methods. It would take time for these to pay dividends, but Egyptian farmers immediately recognized their potential. If Napoleon hoped to rule this country well, he would need an accurate picture of the land and its people. To that end, he ordered the savants to undertake a national census and survey all the land in the country. It had been generations since anyone had made a serious attempt to do either, 
this type of massive bureaucratic undertaking was really not the Mamluks' style. Despite the unfamiliarity of the country, the language barrier, and the threat of Mamluk or Bedouin raiders, the Savats actually did a pretty decent job. Even some Egyptians who were opposed to the French admitted that they were generally fair in adjudicating disputes and meeting out justice. Perhaps, without deep ties to anyone in the country, they often couldn't help but be impartial. But for every act of mercy or good governance, there were a dozen missteps that alienated Egyptians from their new rulers. We've discussed some of these in past episodes. Conflicts caused by cultural and religious differences, favoritism shown to foreigners, and the ugly practical realities of colonial rule. Horatio Nelson's victory at the Nile exacerbated another point of friction between the French and Egyptians, money. An entirely new government can't spring up from nothing. Napoleon certainly had the military force to back up his new regime, but to achieve his aims, he also needed cash, to keep his army paid and supplied, to grease the palms of local notables, and to pay his own officials. Obviously, in time, these costs would come out of tax revenue, but you can't collect taxes or expect people to pay them without an expensive administrative structure already in place. And so, the French administration of Egypt was like a business in need of seed capital. Napoleon had probably planned on appropriating customs duties from Alexandria for this purpose. But now Nelson ruled the Mediterranean, and his blockade strangled seaborne trade. Customs duties were out, and so was any chance of receiving funds from the Directory or from European banks. To keep his dreams of Eastern Empire alive, Bonaparte began to look for domestic sources of funding. That meant finding excuses to squeeze money out of the local population, and that was no more popular in Egypt than it was in Europe. His first targets were the families of the Mamluk leadership. While the Mamluk men were in Syria or in the remote deserts of Upper Egypt continuing to resist the French, most of their wives and children remained in Cairo. Imposing fines on these families served a dual purpose, raising much-needed funds and weakening the Mamluk resistance. Looking at the ornate palaces of Cairo's exclusive neighborhoods, it must have seemed like there was bottomless wealth in this country, that it would only be a matter of applying a little pressure to these fantastically rich families, and all of the expedition's money problems would vanish. This strategy had worked very well in Italy, a very wealthy region with one of the most developed financial sectors in the world. Extorting money from an Italian nobleman often meant little more than forcing him to sign a banker's note. It was a different story in Egypt. The Mamluks kept most of their wealth in tangible form. Coins, precious stones, even jewelry. Like most warriors of this era, including French soldiers, they carried most of it on their persons. This meant the body of a slain Mamluk was a treasure trove for any Republican soldier lucky enough to find one, but also that their wealth was harder for Napoleon's officers to track down when they came around to collect their fines. The French managed to extort only a quarter million francs from Murad Bey's household. By comparison, back in Italy, they'd gotten two million francs from the Duke of Parma and seven million from the Duke of Modena, both of whom ruled over much smaller domains. These extortions weren't enough to solve the expedition's financial problems, and they ensured these influential families would remain in opposition to the French. Many of the Mamluk elite pleaded poverty, claiming their wealth had been looted in the chaotic days after the Battle of the Pyramids, 
It wasn't an implausible claim, given the severity of the rioting, and the degree to which their savings were held in portable form. And so, French fundraising efforts turned next to the general population. Napoleon issued an edict demanding all looted property be turned over to his administration, and his troops combed the city for contraband. Not to return this wealth to its proper owners, but to seize it for the expedition's coffers. Obviously, this process was intrusive, and I doubt the soldiers were too careful in making sure they only confiscated treasure that had been looted in the recent rioting. Still, it wasn't enough. Next, Bonaparte levied huge fines on the guilds of Cairo. The guilds were immensely powerful, they dominated the economic life of the city, and enjoyed huge social and political influence. Almost anyone who worked for a living belonged to one, from unskilled laborers all the way up to wealthy merchants. The guilds had supported the Mamluk War effort right up until Bonaparte took the city, so it wasn't unreasonable or unprecedented to make them pay. But that didn't mean they liked it, and it certainly didn't endear these powerful institutions to their new masters. Cairo had not welcomed the expedition, and a few months of French rule had mostly confirmed that bad first impression. Serious discontent was growing. Whispers of resistance, and even rebellion, filtered through the city. As outsiders with few connections to the population, the French were mostly oblivious. Despite all their recent setbacks and frustrations, on the first day of the month of Vendémiaire, the French garrison of Cairo gathered for the annual celebration of the foundation of the Republic. That's September 22nd, for anyone out there who still follows the old reactionary calendar. Note that under the Directory, it was this day, the anniversary of the foundation of the Republic, not Bastille Day, that was the primary national patriotic holiday. Banners reading, Hail the French Republic, fluttered over the proceedings, written in French and Arabic, alongside banners inscribed with the Muslim Declaration of Faith, There is no God but God, and Muhammad is his prophet, this time only in Arabic. A monument to the men lost in the invasion was unveiled. There was patriotic music, and senior officers made speeches. The ceremony ended with a short address from Bonaparte, read by one of his adjutants, praising the army's steadfastness and reminding them of past victories. It closed with this, quote, Throughout the five months since we left Europe, we have been constantly in the minds of our fellow countrymen. On this day, 40 million citizens celebrate the era of democratic government. Forty million citizens think of you and say, It is their toil, their blood, to which we owe peace, tranquility, prosperity, and the blessings of civil liberty. Long live the Republic. End quote. The address received an ominous reception. When a politician or military leader ended a speech with Long live the Republic, he did so with the expectation that the audience would thunder back, Long live the Republic. But on that day in Cairo, the men did not do so. The adjutant and the other senior officers gestured at the troops, goading them to repeat the phrase, but got very few takers. A captain who was in the audience explained the mood this way, quote, The almost complete silence denoted a universal discontent. In fact, having been deprived of any way of returning to their country, learning every day of the slaughter of more of their comrades, and suffering all manner of privations, the soldiers muttered curses at those they thought to be the cause of their exile. The army had always been devoted to the fatherland, not to this or that form of government. 
They grumbled because they thought all our sacrifices had contributed nothing to the glory or well-being of their beloved fatherland. But at no time did such mutterings, vague and limited as they were, ever diminish the courage of the troops, as the future would show. End quote. I should note that when he says, those they thought to be the cause of their exile, he means the navy, which had just been defeated at the Nile. Still, even if they weren't blaming their own leaders, the mood in the ranks was clearly turning sour. The men were losing faith in the expedition. Another observer wrote that after this ominous silence, Bonaparte, quote, all of a sudden took on an air of seriousness. No doubt it provoked many reflections in him, end quote. After the speeches, there were sports, and of course, a feast, attended not only by the French officers, but native Kyrene guests as well. Whatever discontent roiled in the city, on this day, there was at least the appearance of unity. The centerpiece at the table was a red liberty cap and an Islamic crescent. Each guest received copies of the Declaration of Rights of Man and of the Quran. Servants poured drinks, fruit juice for the Muslims, wine for everyone else. Gaspar Mange, the eminent scientist and mathematician and leader of the savants, delivered the toast, quote, To the perfection of the human spirit and the progress of reason. End quote. The day of the Republic ended with a display of fireworks, which that eloquent young French captain called the most beautiful he had ever seen. In the field of pyrotechnics, the East still enjoyed clear superiority over the West. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The celebration of the Republic on September 22, 1798, was clearly intended to be the capstone on the successful conquest of Egypt. You erect monuments to commemorate campaigns in the past, not ones that are still ongoing. The bicultural feast at the end of the day represented the hope that the French and Egyptians might find some mutually beneficial modus vivendi. But like so much about the expedition, that would turn out to be wishful thinking. The Feast of the Republic would not mark the end of a period of trials and the dawn of a new era, but a brief respite before the Army of the Orient was plunged once again into death and horror. Not long after the festival, Egypt was struck by plague. And I'm not speaking metaphorically here. We are talking about the Black Death, Yersinia pestis, the bubonic plague, one of the deadliest diseases of the age. Plague outbreaks were a relatively regular occurrence in the region, but it put the country and its new administration under severe stress. The Army of the Orient was hit very hard. Perhaps as many as 15% of Napoleon's troops were infected at some point during the month of October. Over 2,000 died men who could not be replaced, and Bonaparte could not afford to lose. To make up for the losses, all surviving French naval personnel in Egypt were incorporated into the army. Napoleon also drafted all recently purchased Mamluks under the theory that they hadn't been in the country long enough to form ties with their overlords. The French were beginning to scrape the bottom of the manpower barrel. By now, the total strength of the Army of the Orient was almost certainly well under 20,000 men and they had a lot of potential threats to worry about. 
With control of the sea, the British could land troops anywhere along the coast at will. The Ottomans were preparing their armies for an offensive. To the south, several thousand French troops under General Dessay were busy chasing Murad Bey through Upper Egypt. To the east, Ibrahim Bey's army remained intact in and around the Sinai region, where they raided pilgrim caravans on their way to Mecca for the annual Hajj. The defense of pilgrims was a major responsibility for any ruler in the Muslim world, so this was seen as a dastardly act by Ibrahim Bey, but it was perhaps an even greater black mark on the new French administration, who had failed to defend the caravans. In the Egyptian heartland, the army was hard-pressed just to maintain order over the civilian population. The Bedouin were as unruly as ever, ambushing isolated patrols and engaging in banditry. Out in the countryside, when peasants saw a French column approaching, they gathered at the outskirts of town to shout, Go back! at the soldiers. In Cairo, Bonaparte had to issue an edict ordering the population to stop cheering whenever they saw a wounded Frenchman. In late September, a revolt broke out in the city of Damietta, a major port in the Nile Delta. It was suppressed without too much difficulty, but not before spreading to nearby villages, some of which were burned by the French. Order was restored, but only at a terrible cost, in lives and in damage to the army's reputation. In the capital, two men were executed for passing messages to Murad Bey. The gestures towards unity between the French and Egyptians at the celebration of the Republic had been nothing more than that, gestures. Anger was building. On October 20th, the French administration unveiled its new tax policy. The old feudal system would be replaced by a progressive property tax, assessed on the value and income of every building and plot of land in the country. On paper, this was very sound policy. The burden of taxation would shift away from those who were less able to pay and onto the shoulders of wealthy merchants and landowners. More money would be collected more efficiently, at the cost of less pain to the population. Napoleon had promised the people of Egypt enlightened reforms, and this new tax plan certainly fit the bill. Notices were plastered all over the city, hailing this new progressive system. But the population saw this plan very differently. In Muslim lands, these types of taxes had always been reserved for Christians and Jews, who were exempted from military service and thus expected to pay an extra financial obligation to the state. These taxes marked minority groups as outsiders, not part of the body politic. And so, to many Egyptian Muslims, the imposition of a property tax on them made them legal outsiders in their own country, a country where they comprised a huge majority of the population and which had been ruled by Muslims for nearly 12 centuries. They saw this new property tax as a profound insult, which cut right to the cores of their identities. Insults like that aren't debated on their merits. They are answered in kind. The next day, mobs began to form all over Cairo, chanting, God grant victory to Islam. Outside the Al-Azhar Mosque, the most important Muslim institution in the country, an imam addressed the crowd, quote, all true monotheists should come to Al-Azhar, for today is the raid upon the infidels, in which we shall remove our dishonor and take our revenge upon them. End quote. This was no mere tax protest. The mobs aimed to answer every imposition and slight of the preceding months of occupation. Cairo was boiling over. The French were slow to respond. 
The commander of the garrison, 31-year-old General Dominique Dupuis, rode out with only a dozen men to investigate the disorder. In a city the size of Cairo, Dupuis was often called upon to settle some minor public disturbance or another, and he assumed these reports would prove to be a matter of routine. Instead, he found the streets so packed with hostile crowds that he and his men had difficulty maneuvering. Someone in the mob fired a shot. In the ensuing confusion, Dupuis was knocked from his horse. As he struggled to remount, a spear was thrust into his head. His men tried to save him, but the young general died before reaching headquarters. The French garrison was about to face the greatest challenge of the campaign so far, and it had just lost its leader. Rumors spread among the Egyptians that it was Bonaparte himself, not the lesser-known Dupuis, who had been slain. Encouraged by this story, the rebellion kicked into high gear. Prominent residents of the city formed a so-called Council of Defense, in effect a provisional rebel government and military high command, headquartered at Al-Azhar. The rebels had the jump on the French, but not everything was going their way. Like many large cities, Cairo was a place of distinct neighborhoods and districts, almost more like a mass of interconnected towns and villages than a unified conglomeration. Many key districts did not join the rebellion. Indeed, while the clerics at Al-Azhar were preaching revenge, in other parts of the city, the imams were calling for calm and restraint, perhaps out of a genuine desire for peace, or perhaps out of fear of what the French might do in response. Because the other big problem faced by the rebels was the sheer number of French troops in the city. Most of the Army of the Orient was camped in or around Cairo. Obviously, there were still a lot more Egyptians than Frenchmen, but the occupiers had training, artillery, and horses, and had proven to be a fearsome force on the battlefield. The quiet parts of the city gave the French space to regroup and maneuver as the garrison prepared their counterstroke. Meanwhile, in the insurgent quarters of the city, mobs looted and defaced French-owned property and killed any Frenchmen they could find. When they ran out of targets, they broadened their anger to include any Christian, including the Coptic and Armenian communities, which had been part of the life of the city for centuries. Even the Muslim anti-French writer Abd al-Rahman al-Jabarti was appalled by the level of violence during the rebellion. He wrote that the mobs, quote, committed many disgraceful acts without thinking of the consequences, end quote, although he did ultimately blame the French for inspiring such depravity. Napoleon was not in the city when the violence broke out. Sources differ as to where exactly he was and what he was doing, but once he learned of the scale of the violence and the death of General Dupuis, he returned to the city to organize the response. At first, he tried diplomacy, promising amnesty to any rebels who laid down their arms and returned to their homes. Very few, if any, accepted. He also ordered prominent residents of the city to call for calm and summoned them to his headquarters. Obviously, he needed their help, but this was also a test of loyalty. Almost all the notables of Cairo failed, making excuses that it was too unsafe, clearly hedging their bets. There would be no solution to this crisis without further bloodshed. To replace the fallen Dupuis as commander of the garrison, Bonaparte appointed General Louis Bon, who had served with distinction in Italy as one of General Augereau's brigade commanders. Bon and Bonaparte then set about suppressing the rebellion. The French would lean in to one of their main advantages over the rebels, a tool Napoleon had already used once in the past to suppress an urban insurgency, artillery. 
they placed guns along the main boulevards out of the rebel districts. This successfully contained the insurgency, but actually venturing into the narrow streets around Al-Azhar to take the fight to the enemy was a different matter. Napoleon assessed the situation this way, quote, Matters took on a most serious appearance. The reconquest of Cairo could prove difficult. End quote. French soldiers stayed up through the night of October the 21st through 22nd, working to bring their artillery closer to Al-Azhar, in preparation for the next day's assault. They struggled mostly in vain. It was dark, the streets were narrow and unfamiliar, and many had been barricaded by the mob. Just after dawn the next morning, there were reports of Bedouin emerging from the desert to attack the city. Bonaparte sent a small detachment to meet them, led by one of his staff, Joseph Solkowski, a 28-year-old Polish exile who had been one of his closest aides since the beginning of the Italian campaign. Solkowski found a large body of horsemen, but he had seen in the past how the Bedouin often dispersed when challenged, and they might cause some serious headaches if they were allowed to enter the city. And so, he ordered a charge, 15 men against several hundred. Only one Frenchman survived. According to one source, the Bedouin fed Solkowski's body to stray dogs. Unable to get their cannons close to the rebel districts, the French bombarded them from afar, and Republican units began probing their way into insurgent territory, to clear the way to move their artillery a little closer to the rebel stronghold at Al-Azhar. The mobs made them fight for almost every inch. A few had firearms, but most were armed only with improvised clubs or bladed tools. A French civilian who participated in the fighting would later remember, quote, Every street became a theater of slaughter. End quote. By about noon, the French had secured the citadel, which overlooked the rebel headquarters at Al Azhar, and placed their cannon along its walls. All of the insurgents who remained under arms were now corralled into the mosque and its immediate surroundings, with every street sealed off. Few things set off Napoleon's infamous temper like insubordination. Now he had several thousand men who had dared take up arms against him, trapped. Over the preceding 24 hours, they had shown no mercy to any Frenchman within their grasp. Now Napoleon would return the favor. If descriptions of violence are a problem for you, you might want to skip ahead a few minutes, because things are about to get very ugly. Once the bombardment began, it became clear the rebel position was hopeless. They asked to negotiate. Bonaparte refused, exclaiming, quote, The hour of vengeance has sounded. You should have surrendered when you had the chance. You started this. It is for me to finish. End quote. The Egyptian chronicler Al Jabarti wrote that Cairo had never experienced such an intense bombardment. He was almost certainly right. Since the beginning of the expedition, winning the hearts and minds of the Egyptian people had been one of Napoleon's primary concerns. But as his guns hammered Al-Azhar, he thought only of punishment and revenge. He had once told his men to respect Muslim clerics and mosques above all else. Now, the holiest Islamic site in the country was being pounded to dust before his eyes. After a long bombardment, he ordered the grenadiers to fix bayonets and assault Al-Azhar. The French pushed into the insurgents once again, and it seemed a massacre was about to ensue until Napoleon ordered a halt, and finally accepted the rebel surrender. I would stop short of saying Cairo was pacified, but the rebellion was over. 
although the fires set off by the fighting burned through the night. The mercy shown to the captured insurgents was only a temporary reprieve. The next day, Bonaparte ordered anyone who had been caught with a weapon executed, and their bodies thrown into the Nile for the crocodiles. To save ammunition, the killings were carried out with axes and bayonets. At Toulon in 1793, Napoleon had been disgusted by such measures. When faced with an existential threat, the supposedly enlightened, modern, civilized French responded with the same type of brutal, indiscriminate violence that they associated with supposedly barbaric eastern tyrants like the Mamluks. As you might imagine from this type of brutal, chaotic fighting, estimates of the casualties range widely. The French lost anywhere from a few hundred men to just shy of a thousand, although I think some of those higher estimates also include civilian casualties. Thousands of Egyptians died. Some sources claim only around 2,000, others go as high as 8. The lower numbers seem to be counting only those who were killed by the French, not anyone who died at the hands of the mob or as collateral damage. But we shouldn't get bogged down talking about numbers. The revolt of Cairo was a horrifying, bloody event, no matter how many exactly were killed. It represented the end of Napoleon's high hopes of being embraced by the general population as a progressive alternative to Mamluk rule. Machiavelli wrote that it was better for a ruler to be loved and feared, but that if forced to choose between the two, it was always better to be feared and hated than loved and not feared. In this case, Napoleon seems to have made the same calculation. On top of everything else, Bonaparte was dealing with personal problems. At some point during the summer, he was made aware of his wife Josephine's indiscretions with her so-called friend, Captain Hippolyte Charles. It was his old friend Junot who made the disclosure. Perhaps this was an early sign of his impending mental decline, something let slip in a foggy moment, or a rash decision made in a mood swing. Apparently, the conversation left Bonaparte literally shaking with rage. The typically eloquent general was reduced to merely muttering the word divorce over and over again. I've heard it said that this was the beginning of the end of Napoleon's friendship with Junot, that he metaphorically shot the messenger by shutting out his former assistant. But Bonaparte didn't throw people aside so easily, particularly those who knew him before his rise to fame. Remember, this was the man who had once offered to break Napoleon out of jail. Junot would get a second chance, and a third chance, and a fourth chance, etc., for over a decade, until his cognitive and emotional problems from his head trauma became so profound that they isolated him from almost everyone in his life, including his old chief. Napoleon was crushed by these revelations about Josephine. French society was in a libertine moment, and infidelity was common. But, on the other hand, there was a sexist double standard around cheating. Napoleon came from a socially conservative, honor-based culture, and above all, he loved his wife. He swore to return to France immediately, drag Josephine through a public divorce, and murder Captain Charles, along with any other suitors. Murat, the flamboyant cavalryman, and Berthier, his old reliable chief of staff, staged an intervention, and this unlikely duo managed to talk him out of any rash course of action but Napoleon remained emotionally destroyed. As he often did when he was at his lowest, Napoleon wrote a letter to his brother, Joseph. Quote, I have a great deal of domestic affliction. 
The veil has been lifted entirely. You are my only friend left on earth. It is a sad position when one's affections are centered upon one heart. You understand this. End quote. That's Napoleon's relationship with Josephine in a nutshell. Even when he hated her, he still loved her. The letter continued, quote, I am tired of human nature. Even at 29 years of age, glory is trite. I have exhausted everything. End quote. Interestingly, he also arranged for Joseph to rent him a house back in France, saying he might return to Europe as early as the fall of 1798. I find this detail particularly significant. This letter was written in the summer of 1798, before the Battle of the Nile, and even then, Napoleon was already thinking about a contingency, in case this Egyptian adventure turned sour. Of course, this was dressed up in his concern about his wife's infidelity, so perhaps he couldn't even admit to himself that he had doubts about the expedition, but I think he must have been aware, even subconsciously, that the odds of success were small and already declining. Adding to the awkwardness of the situation, his headquarters staff included 17-year-old Eugène de Beauharnais, Josephine's son by her first husband. To Napoleon's credit, he was careful to avoid taking out any of his anger on his stepson, but it can't have been easy to live with this daily reminder of one of his wife's other men. It probably helped that he'd grown quite fond of Eugène. Napoleon had liked his stepson from the start, and probably more importantly, he saw potential in this young man. Now, Eugène was faced with the uncomfortable task of informing his mother of her husband's suspicions which he did with a surprising level of maturity for a teenage boy thrust into such an awkward position. From his letter to Josephine, quote, My dear mama, I have so many things to say to you that I don't know where to begin. Bonaparte has been extremely sad for five days, as a result of a conversation with Junot. This conversation has affected him more than I could have believed. End quote. He then goes on to summarize the rumors that were by then surely flying around headquarters, and continues, quote, You know, Mama, that I do not believe this, but what is certain is that the general is very upset. However, he redoubles in his kindnesses to me. He seems to say, by his actions, that children are not responsible for the faults of their mother. Your son, however, chooses to believe that all gossip is manufactured by your enemies. Your son loves you as much as ever, and is as eager as ever to see you. End quote. Unfortunately for Napoleon and his family, their humiliations were far from over. The ship carrying the expedition's mail back to France was intercepted by the British. Napoleon's letter to Joseph and Eugène's letter to Josephine were both translated and sent to London, where they were reprinted in the tabloid press. It wasn't long before the story carried over the channel, and by the end of the year, Napoleon's marital troubles were the laughingstock of the entire continent. It's sometimes argued that this incident was the beginning of a change in Napoleon, from the idealistic young soldier of the revolution to the cynical operator who would one day crown himself emperor. I don't see it that way. Like many people, especially those who live through revolutions, Napoleon became more cynical as he aged. And, like most people with power, he increasingly fixated on maintaining it the longer he stayed on top. Those changes are quite normal, even predictable. I don't think you need to look to his personal life to explain them. And we're not talking about a total transformation here. 
The cynical, self-interested side of Bonaparte's character was present in his early life, and we'll still see flashes of his idealism as we move later and later into his career. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. The British blockade made it nearly impossible for any news from France to reach Egypt, or vice versa. But Nelson was careful to make an exception for any particularly bad news, which might damage the morale of the Army of the Orient. It was in this way, in December of 1798, the British allowed Napoleon to learn that war had returned to Western Europe. There was a new coalition afoot, and the Republic would be fighting for its life once again, almost certainly too preoccupied with existential threats to offer any further assistance to an army stranded in faraway Egypt. Any lingering hope that the expedition might be saved by the government was extinguished. Next episode, we'll see Bonaparte respond to these latest disasters with characteristic boldness, and take a look at his own romantic transgressions. Until then, thanks for listening. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.